Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Watch. Really special episode. I was joined by Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones, who are the showrunners of Black Mirror. Uh, Black Mirror, obviously, four seasons of terrifying, thought-provoking television. It is essentially been called the new Twilight Zone. If you've listened to The Watch, you know all about Black Mirror. It was a real honor to get to talk to Charlie, who I, I think is one of those sharpest minds in television, frankly. Uh, and Annabelle was great talking a little bit about the production and what goes into making these episodes. We talked about where Black Mirror is and where it's been and where it could go. It was just a really fascinating conversation. And after that talk with Charlie and Annabelle, Andy had a conversation with Rolling Blackouts. They have a new album called The Hammer, which is out June 6th. And you should definitely check it out. They did a great job playing live for us and they had a cool conversation. So Annabelle Jones and Charlie Brooker from Black Mirror and the band Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever uh, with Andy. You'll be able to hear all that coming up. And we'll be back on Monday, probably to talk Westworld and Succession and a whole bunch of other stuff. So thanks for listening. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. I'm so glad to be joined by Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones. They are the showrunners of Black Mirror. Charlie created the show years ago, I guess back in, what, what year did it, did, you, did you create the show? 1872. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was around, it was 2011. 2011. 2011. It was probably actually before that that we came up with it. It was probably more like 2010, but it was on air. The first, the first episodes went out 2011, late mm. 2011. Um, yeah. And I... I have to cop to being an early adopter on in the states to this show and watching it only quasi legally. I think is about what I'm willing uh, to admit. I think what you mean is illegally. Yes, there may have been uh, some Russian streams uh, bouncing uh, off of a couple of. Uh, no, but they, this was the thing is that especially in 2011 back then, mm. British TV was still you know you'd have to go kind of find mm. it out. But it what it kind of reminded me of when I would get you know, a punk rock seven-inch single in a record store that I didn't know the band. And it had a certain enigmatic quality. And as the show has sort of developed over the years, and now it's on Netflix, and now it's become almost its own way of describing a certain state of being, you know, it's like a very Black Mirror moment. How do you, how has your relationship changed to the idea of it? Was it ever a punk rock artifact for you, or was it? Uh, well, I, <laughs> I, I like the idea of it. Yeah. Well, well, you are, but then I, th I think that very, it's, it, it came about because we did a show, which you can also see on Netflix called Dead Set, yes. which was like which a I zombie. Which I also watched quasi-legally. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, you're a serial offender by <laughs> yeah. the sounds of things. <laughs> Holy mackerel. Um, uh, so uh, we, we'd done that and, and, and then we went to, to Channel 4 in the UK and said that we'd like to do an anthology show. And at the time, I remember there were not many shows that felt like they were about sort of ideas or big outrageous ideas. Um, and, and, and I was always a fan of things like The Twilight Zone. And also, like, when I was a kid, the BBC quite often did these really bizarre one-off sort of TV plays that were always controversial and strange and mm. metaphorical. And it felt like everything on TV was about sort of, you know, people wearing ruffs who it's impossible to care about. <laughs> um, am I allowed to swear? You, you, certainly, yeah. 
Well, just um, I'm not going to just start blindly swearing. It's just I was going to say people I can't, I couldn't give a shit about. Right. You know, because um, it's quite punk punky. rock. That's punky. Yeah, do you like ah, it? Um, uh, yeah. So and or, or the detect, dark detective dramas about um, alcoholic detectives. Yeah. Of, you know, weeping into a coffin. And the show's named after his last name, and he lives in a village somewhere. Yeah, and he, str- <laughs> and he struggles with issues, and and it's all about the banality of evil. Um, uh, and yeah, so I think we definitely we definitely thought well, certainly with the nature of our first episode, I think we thought well, this is a bit of a one shot deal. Yeah, like it's it's you might as well if you're going to do if you're being if you've got that leeway, you might as well take it, I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah. in that respect, yes, it's exactly like a punk single. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting whether season one feels... I mean, obviously there's a variety yeah. in any season because it's an anthology and you have to embrace that and you need to deliver that so that people feel they're mm-hmm. getting something different and that we feel we're not becoming predictable. But that first season was probably our most varied, I yeah. would say, because we were sort of finding finding what the show could be and finding the DNA of it. Um, but, but that first episode is a big outlier, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah, I mean, they're all outliers in a way, but def- very definitely I remember that... I do like it when sometimes would people would, would come to the first episode and then they'd be like, A... Uh, well, a if they went with it, yeah, because uh, it's a it's quite divisive. Um, although uh, uh, it's the the humour of it, I think, and the context of it probably made made more sense in the UK. Sure, um, because there was a public ap- appetite for humiliation at the time, and there were shows, really mainstream shows, like on ITV Saturday Night Entertainment, where it was all about celebrities doing really humiliating things. Literally, there was a guy who had been he was a former head of the Metropolitan Police, then he'd run for mayor of London he'd not won the end of the uh, by the end of that same year he was a contestant in this show called I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of right. Here and I remember watching he was he was having to, to in order to win food he was having <laughs> to drink a pint of liquidised kangaroo penis as quickly as he could in a race against a, a former children's TV host okay um, and this was normality this was very mainstream entertainment <laughs> and I thought this is more shocking than like cannibal holocaust right. or something um, and so that was the sort of backdrop for that episode mm. um, the national anthem yeah mm. the national anthem and, and and I always love it when people watch that and they go right and they didn't realise the show was an anthology and they they, they put on episode two and they're completely wrong-footed because it's 15 million merits and it's Daniel Kaluuya and it's and it's a very, very different world. Um, and then they'd sort of get whiplash and go, oh, I see, right, every episode is different, which is obviously the oldest format of television there is. Right. But I'd, I'd love to think what they thought was going to happen. Like they were thinking, so, they thought they were going to see the episode... When's the pig coming? Yeah, the right. pig comes back. When do we um, get the pig's backstory? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't phrase it like that. <laughs> well, even though... Oh my gosh. Even though it's an anthology series, you know, a couple of months ago, my my boss here, who also does a podcast, and he was talking to Brian Koppelman, who writes this show called Billions here. I don't know if it, that's made it over to England at all. It has. Weirdly, I was just looking at a tweet from Brian Koppelman yeah. about somebody... Pitching a f- movie at his mum's funeral or something. Really? Yeah. <gasps> Someone tried to pitch him a movie. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Well, he said to B- Bill, my boss, mm. he said that Billions is, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, but that Billions is essentially like the repository for everything that he finds interesting. That he's sort of taken this story that is ostensibly about a, a attorney general going after a hedge fund banker, but fills it with everything he thinks about food and music and 
old movies that he likes to reference and all these other plot lines that kind of, he's like, I don't, it almost is like he doesn't need to do anything else but Billions because Billions can support everything he's interested in. And I was wondering for you two, do you feel that way about Black Mirror? Because obviously you have this wide open canvas to work on, but when you want to populate it with anything, do you feel like it can support that? Almost hmm. everything. I think certainly as it's gone along, we've, we've, We've kind of stuck a flag in more territories. Yeah, that we you know so we can do we can do romances. We can do you know in the last in the in, in the in season four in the last season we did hang the DJ, which is virtually a rom com. Yeah, you know we can do USS Callister, which is a space opera, or we can do something like Crocodile, which is a very dark sort of crime mm. noir story. So I think. Almost anything. But they all have that Black Mirror DNA mm -hmm. running through them. I don't think we could do an outright overt comedy I that didn't have a Black Mirror DNA. know about that. <laughs> We've had this very discussion before. Really? So yes, we have. Yes, because I, well, I think I can say that I was once keen on the idea for a while, for about, 15 minutes, I was keen on the idea of almost doing a Zucker Brothers style <laughs> episode. Just a slapstick comedy episode? Yeah. Well, we've done, which is something we've done in the UK uh -huh. before. We did a, a parody, we did a, we did a parody of, of dark British detective series mm. um, called A Touch of Cloth, we called it. And it was, uh, which is an obscene British joke that will not travel. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, and, it's almost our speciality. Yeah. And I sort of, I wanted to do a, I wanted to do an episode of Black Mirror that was like a parody of Black Mirror because I think sometimes, I, I love all the sort of jokes people make about it and, but, but I think sometimes the only thing I'm slightly wounded by there is I think, what do you think? We don't have a sense of humor, you fuckers. Like, how do you think these ideas come about? We're just, we're not, we don't sit there frowning and going, oh, the app store is just evil, isn't it? This is <laughs> oh, my goodness me. Have you sold Instagram? What are people doing with their lives? We don't sit around doing that. Um, we sit around being s s stupid. <laughs> yeah. Um, Although, looking at some of the episodes, I don't. No, 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 no. Good, good, good. Yeah. yeah. There is comedy, but it's quite buried, I would say. Sometimes well, in some of the episodes, it's quite buried under a lot of bleakness. Sure. I'm not yeah. calling Metalhead a comedy. No. No, so, no although, you know, there's, uh, there's a, I'm sure there's a laugh in Metalhead somewhere. I actually, I, I, I actually hate to say, I think I might disagree with that. <laughs> After Yay. recently rewatching Metalhead. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of funny when she throws the paint over the... What? Well, I mean, okay, it's not what? funny. It's not funny. It's not funny. It's not slapstick no, paint throwing, You know what? There is, is a joke right at the start where they're talking about pigs' noses being the same height as their assholes. That's sort of like sure. banter. Gallows humor, yeah. yeah. And then they all die. So, <laughs> so, um, so gets funnier. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask a little bit about the actual um, behind-the-scenes work that goes into producing something that doesn't, at least on the surface, seem to have any rules. Like, what is something... When you when he when you see the script for Hated in the Nation, is it already? Hey, this is going to be ninety minutes. I think we're going to try and do something that's essentially like a buddy cop investigation film. Is it something that you expand or contract a lot based on initial drafts? These these things go through lots of drafts. How complicated is it to mount what is essentially a feature film inside of a season of television that does not take place in those sets? I'm kind of curious about like any. Any observations you could share with us about the actual making of the show? 
Uh, we make it up as we go along, okay. which allows us to be spontaneous, is the way I'm going to pitch that. Um, no, we sort of know, you know, that the by the time you've got a script, we have already, depending on what the idea is, had many weeks or months developing it. And so we're aware of what it is as it's evolving, so we can sort of prepare for that. Um, we knew The Hated in the Nation was going to be a long piece because there's so much exposition in there and, you know, it's a procedural almost in, in some respects. So you know what beast it is. Um, but you know, the beauty of Netflix is you do not have to restrict yourself. Sure. You know, you can let the story dictate the time. And um, we do, you know, we do treat every single episode like it is a film and they're all autonomous. So there's no overlap between any of the films. So they are unlike a normal TV show where there is a structure, a series structure. So in that sense, the key is, I suppose, to make sure we have enough time to try and, vis you know, to try and realise them all um, as creatively as they deserve to be and none of them film at the same time mm -hmm. so um uh we manage it it is a lot of work i would sure. say mm. you know which is why many you know until recently not many people have made anthologies because it's incredibly demanding creatively and stupid thing to do <laughs> yeah do you distinguish between for you for you two when you watch it or if you rewatch it or think about it do you distinguish between the seasons in terms of any stylistic shifts, any things that you can see, oh, obviously we knew how to do this differently on season three rather than season one? Um, I think we, we we got a bit more, like certainly in season four, for instance, there's there's a lot more VFX than mm -hmm. there were in previous mm. seasons because we got You guys got more, these. Yeah, we got more confident. Uh, yeah. We got more mm -hmm. confident and we realized, oh, we can... Mm. That was where Callister came from in a way. Was It sprang from a conversation about, oh, should we do an episode set in space? I guess we could. Yeah. Um, and we wouldn't have done Metalhead if we hadn't done Hate in the Nation. That's true. Um, so, Met I mean, oh, there's a huge risk with something like Metalhead where obviously the dog is not present till the post stage and the whole film depends on the authenticity and credibility of that dog. So yeah. it's a massive risk. Um, yeah. But yes, but you get confident and you get different, you know, uh, tools to, to make your films with. I think that the tone, I mean, the tone of the, the we, we've, we've expanded certainly the, they've got, we've got more, lighter stories have come in, like Hang the DJ is a fairly, yeah. is, is one of the most bubbly stories we've ever done, I would say. I was really nervous when, when writing it. I mean, it's still quite, you know, it's still got, uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of darkness in it. Um, mm -hmm. But I remember being nervous when writing it, thinking, um, this is, this is, you know, a rom-com. What am I doing? Are people going to... There's a sort of adolescent part of me that sort of, that goes, oh, yeah, I've done an episode here and it's all, it's all concrete and piss. And it's like, I've broken it, right? And what happens is uh, someone shoves a SIM card in his fucking eye and then he, he unravels and he falls down the pissy concrete steps and he dies and that's the end. Can we go back to the rom-com? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but, is it, this, that's not the sequel to San Junipero that you're no, pitching, right? concrete and piss. <laughs> Yeah. Is not might disappoint some bits. Um, uh, <laughs> so, um, so, so sometimes, so it's been interesting to me that actually I think they've got more probably there's broader emotion going mm -hmm. on in them as as the season. Having said that, I mean early I on there know. was, but I mean be right back was probably actually the first time I thought this is like, oh, what am I doing here? Uh, back in season two, fifteen million merits is yeah. a love story. No, that's at true. Its very hard. Oh, I'm a liar. You're more romantic than you want to be. <laughs> a lot of people want to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Mm, okay. A, a lot of people have, um, I think, a 
deep attachment to maybe the concepts or the, the sort of ideas in the show. And you said it was an almost an idea forward, I you know, show in its in its inception. Mm-hmm. Are there particular characters that you find yourself attached to? Obviously, the San Junipero characters have become sort of iconic in a lot of ways, but yeah. anyone we wouldn't necessarily guess that you... Charlie's got a huge affinity with Daly, haven't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's in the game, yeah, the, the, in the USS the Callister. The tyrant who, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That's who I mainly yeah, uh, relate to. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, actually, well, like Nanette, the whole of the crew of the Callister, I would say, we, <laughs> we like really like uh, Karen and Blue from Hated in the Nation was, that was that was a sort of duo where we thought this feels a bit like a episode like you oh we could do another story with yeah. them in mm. um uh, specific characters. Characters that we relate to characters that Just that we you hold enjoy. dear, like characters that you want. Um, I mean, uh, there's one I'm doing, well, I can't tell you anything about it, but you remember there's that one I sort of like really love one of the characters in it and I kept expanding the part that we're doing at the moment that I was like, just invented a new character and then just kept yeah. giving them more and more things to do until they, yeah. I, I think it's interesting how you can have a quite a small role and they become quite a big feature unwittingly within a film. So we did one in season three called Shut Up and Dance, which was a, the complete contrast to San Junipero mm-hmm. in that it was small London, gritty grey, you know, suburban London, and it's following a young man who's being uh, blackmailed. And, you know, it's quite harrowing, it's quite depressing. And then in the middle, you have this woman that they pick, the two drive, the yeah. drivers in the car, pick up, and she's just an average mum doing a PTA run. And it's this incredibly funny comedic little interlude that just takes the pressure out of the film and we all just love that scene mm-hmm. for that very reason so there are little moments little things like that yeah. just go, oh, that's Where it's delightful sort of, it turns into a sitcom almost for a few moments it's like, it's like a sitcom scenario where it's like there's the, yeah. there's, they've got this secret they're trying to desperately hide from the from the person in the back of the, yeah. the car yeah uh, I've, there's all sorts of like there's, there, weirdly you say you you mentioned shut up and dance and also I'm slightly fascinated by the woman who works in the in the garage, garage. that he goes into like just before because she's got a slightly odd manner about her <laughs> every so often sometimes there's been like in in 15 million merits there was um uh there was a character who the the character that the 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 young girl who can't sing in it oh, yeah. um and that scene was written um, that was added because she was so good. That scene wasn't in it originally where she turns up at the end oh. and goes, I can sing! And she's like saying, because she was just scripted to be just in the sort of holding pen area. And she was so good and was such a strong flavour that I think I went off and just wrote an extra scene and we managed to cram it into the into the running order. Get, mm-hmm. Wrote the scene where she actually gets to go on the stage. Oh, that's because fascinating. Because it was like, oh, she's great. Sometimes it's nice to be able to... Because I guess because, thinking about it, because we're doing it on a TV um, schedule and because we're not because we're not trying to, we're not having to set up the logic for something that has to sustain over five seasons. It only has to work till the end of a story. We can sometimes make huge sweeping changes to a story relatively late in the day. And right. that's sometimes really, like White Bear is a very good example of that where the, the script went in the bin and a whole new story really? came in. Yeah. Oh well, you mentioned this idea of um, of not being beholden to past or previous episodes, but obviously there's there's a lot of scholarship online about the idea that Black Mirror is all taking place in a in the same world, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And people have gone as far as to start putting together a at least a loose timeline of the episodes in terms of how they would sort of technically need to be in what order based on the technology. 
I was also curious about the cause and effect that would happen in each episode. Uh-huh. Like how what happens in one episode would change the world and whether that's stuff that you guys think about or it's something that you still do hang on to the idea that, yes, there are some shared threads, but essentially these are separate stories. I think we have malleable rules on that. That's what I was hoping to hear. <laughs> yeah, because it's sometimes it's useful... So in 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 uh, Black Museum, we have there's a bit where Rolo Haynes, who works for TCKR, which is the same company that we see in San Junipero, and he's going into a hospital that's called St Juniper's Hospital, and so there's a clear sort of through line there that we don't bother to explain. But on the other hand, if there's um, we sometimes we've uh, some we sometimes have used the logic of one thing. I'm thinking of particular. Often it's to do with a gadget or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm. So so if there's a um, I remember when we did we did the entire history of you, which is the episode where everyone can rewind and replay memories, and they use a sort of little thumb controller thing to control to access the UI in their eyes. And then when we came to do White Christmas, which also had a sort of in retina sort of uh, system, um, we went round the houses trying to invent different. Uh, modes of technology yeah and then thought why are we why don't we just use the one we that was when we started using stuff that you would kind of yeah. have yeah it's laziness oh that's yeah. great it was like oh well we've cleared the company name for that so yeah. and we've designed a thing oh and I found the pebble in my drawer let's yeah. use that the <laughs> pebble the, that was we called <laughs> it the pebble. pebble so I just wanted to ask you about Be Right Back because it's actually a staff favorite over here and oh. I was wondering if you guys had any any memories you wanted to share about the making of that episode, the writing of that episode? Obviously, Haley Atwell is so amazing in it. Um, but yeah. it's the one that I thought has both the heart and the head of the show mm-hmm. up front. And that, I guess yeah. that's why it's always been so meaningful to me. Yes. No, it's an incredibly poignant and uh, upsetting film. Um, we filmed it in a wonderfully isolated farmhouse in um, outside of London. And it was all very remote and no one was around for miles. And I think that emphasized the mood of the piece. And it's certainly, I mean, Hayley, who was, I think, in every scene. Yeah, wasn't, yeah virtually every scene. Mm-hmm. It was very demanding for yeah. her as a role and very exhausting. And, um, and so I think if, it was very much a, you know, a crew team spirit with her. Um, uh, and it was, yeah, it was heartbreaking. It was a, just just such a tragic story, but very relatable and a story. I mean, what's, what I think what I love most about Black Mirror is that whilst, yes, we have this um, slight accolade of being, you know, um, very contemporary, you know, they're very often very simple, intimate personal oh, stories. Yeah. And that is a, a modern story about grief and love and how you how you mourn someone in the digital age where you can, you know, be followed by their images wherever you go. You know, and so it's sort of, it felt, I don't know, just a very, very you know, Charlie mm-hmm. wrote a beautiful script. Well, thank you very much. That's the nicest thing you've ever said. You only ever say <laughs> I'm nice undercut things to me. It shortly. You only, you only ever say nice yeah, things to me. Yeah, do you have any notes you'd like to Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I remember the writing of it was relatively quick. It was like, uh, and that's annoyingly sometimes, like San Junipero was another one. Also, di- same director, Owen uh-huh. Harris, di- directed both of Be Right Back and, and San Junipero. Very quick. Um, and I remember I'd just become a dad when I wrote that. So I was probably in a slightly mushy frame of mind um and i was writing it at night um in between so my wife would go to bed and i'd take our son and he'd be sleeping in a little 
sort of crib in my office room and I had a couple of hours in which I could write before he'd wake up and I'd have to feed him. So <laughs> it was a really good, I always say that to people, it was a really good, uh, it was really good for productivity, oddly. Interesting. Because it meant that I knew the I know a lot of new dads who do, do not get that much done. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> I would recommend to them that they do the night shift okay. and they and they force themselves, like, because you 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 you're going to get an hour in probably before you have to do because they wake up every like two hours. Yeah. So, so you're going to get a good hour in, and weirdly, it, I found myself looking forward to the next. I was annoyed when he woke up. It was like, <laughs> oh, I need to get back to doing it. So um, you're, you're saying to anyone who has a deadline, have a new baby. Yeah. 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 Okay. Because that's traditionally Correct. that's obviously you know yeah. you associate having yeah. a baby with acres of free time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, but I do remember, I remember being somewhat nervous when doing, when doing that because it was more, because it was quite pared back and it was, a, it was a, it was a quieter story mm-hmm. in many ways to, to any of the ones we'd done in the first season. So it was, you know, it was, um, I felt like I was becoming more of a grown-up writer. Interesting. I remember thinking that because it wasn't like the slightly, oh, look at me, oh, there's a prime minister and a pig and a, oh, something outrageous is happening. It was, it relied on, uh, you know, a, a grieving woman at the at the centre of it, which is not, you know, and I, and so I, it was, it's a difficult one because that was probably the first time I really had to sort of think my way into a character who's wrestling with something kind of like that that... I don't have direct experience mm-hmm. of, but I was sort of projecting how I felt it would feel. And and, and I remember there were very clear, there was very, very clear, we always have like what, what what we jokingly call my Taliban rules, or we have <laughs> Taliban rules about things where it's like there's a firm logic here and it must not, we go all Taliban about it. And there was a Taliban rule, which was the robot version uh-huh. of Ash, the AI version of Ash, does not feel emotions. He is not going to learn to love her. Right. He is not going to... It's not a story about a a, a bot robot. that shows up and develops it's authentic love. Yeah. He can emulate it, but he will always say he's emulating it, and he doesn't... He's just a... He's just all broadcast. There's no inner life going on because I I felt that makes it so much more painful. Sure. He's... he's uh, And so I was, I was really... Uh, gratified to see how the episode came out. I knew it was good when I saw some of the rushes where they're in the kitchen and she's sort of putting their putting their hands together and I was like tearing up. You're like, oh, that's good, isn't it? They're, they're incredible in yeah. that episode. Well, thank you, Annabelle and Charlie, for coming by. It's thank really you. been a pleasure. I've been such a huge fan for such a long time, so Aww. it's great to talk to you. And we've thank managed so to not much. spoil that for you. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> that's a first. This podcast will never go out. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. We'll get to Andy's interview with Rolling Blackout's Coastal Fever after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you love scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, you'll love Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, helping you find sweet deals at cool, top-rated hotels. Hotel Tonight shows you the best deals at hotels you actually want to stay in. No more scrolling through endless lists of choices. Even though the name's Hotel Tonight, they're not just about last-minute bookings you can book in advance, perfect for planners or procrastinators alike. Hotel Tonight is perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, staycations, three-day weekends, road trips, business bookings, and more, and it's so easy to use. Book hotels in 10 seconds with just three taps and a swipe. There's even the HT Perks program, where the more you book, the better the deals get. I've been using Hotel Tonight for 18 months now. I use it for quick 
weekend getaways. I've used it to book out hotels when I'm going on longer vacations. It's so easy. I've never been disappointed by the hotels that they serve up. It's just a great, great app to use if you like to travel. Get the Hotel Tonight app now to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. That's Hotel Tonight, the only booking app you need. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Microsoft Teams. Microsoft Teams is your hub for teamwork and Office 365. With so much to look after, wouldn't it be great if there was just one place to look? Teams is that single workspace where you can work, share, and connect with people in your work life. Teams brings together your chats, meetings, files, and apps all in one place. Take teamwork where you work with apps for mobile and desktop. So whether you're sprinting towards a deadline or sharing your next big idea, Teams can help you and your team achieve even more. Microsoft Teams and Office 365, office.com slash teams to learn more. Okay, longtime listeners of this pod know that Chris and I love talking music. We love listening to music. Sometimes we even make playlists for you guys. Uh, One thing that I've always wanted to do that we were never quite able to do for logistical reasons was actually bring you music on the podcast. And I'm so excited to say that that changes. That changes today. My favorite new band of the moment, Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever, or Rolling Blackouts CF from Melbourne, Australia, were kind enough to come into the studio and perform three songs for us. This was a total delight and a total pleasure for me, not just because I love this band, not just because they were totally, incredibly nice guys. I mean, of course, they're Australian. Uh, Not just because their performance was sterling, the sound was great, and even people in this office who rarely crack a smile when they're not on the microphone like Chris Ryan seem to enjoy it. Also, though, because my career on the internet basically started doing this thing. People might not know this, they might not remember it, but I used to run spin.com years ago, like when I was 22 or 23, and we would have bands come in and play for our cameras. Chris was a part of it often um, because we were hanging out and working together even back then. And bands that later became big, bands like Spoon or Death Cab for Cutie, would come into the office and perform for us, and we would put it on the internet. But the problem was, no one could watch video on the internet then, really. So it was just all lost. And then the worst part of the story is all those incredible performances were on tape, and they were in the backpack of our video coordinator who moved to Hawaii, and I think he took the tapes with him. Anyway, we're righting old wrongs here because you guys can watch video on the internet and you can have audio. And so we have Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever performing some songs from their brilliant EP, The French Press from last year, and uh, from their brand new album that comes out next week on Sub Pop Records, Hope Downs. I love this band. They are cut from the same cloth as many of my favorite bands from the 80s and 90s, including their Australian forebears, The Go-Betweens, but they are completely of the moment. Three songwriters, complimenting each other instead of dueling with each other. Their self-described sound is tough pop, which I love. I wish more bands did tough pop. And really excited to bring this for you. So we're going to have video content on The Ringer. You can see some performances. But we wanted to bring you in as watchheads and music fans uh, an audio part of the experience. So some conversation with the three songwriters of the band to follow at a great time talking to them. But more importantly, performing what might be my favorite song on the new album, Hope Downs. Talking straight. Here are Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever. Coupe, midnight blue, it's faded, 
Okay, I am beyond thrilled to be joined here by three members of the band Rolling Blackouts, Coastal Fever, my favorite new band in the world. Uh, we have Joe, Fran, and Tom here, all the way from Melbourne, in the studio. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. I Thanks. warned you guys ahead of time, much of this conversation is going to be about cold remedies, um, <laughs> potentially sponsored posts, so feel free to drop a lot of product names as we go. Great <laughs> to go. Um, I have you guys here a few days after your set at Coachella. Uh, you played Sunday. And I believe that means technically Beyonce opened for you. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thanks. Feels good. That must be nice, right? It was nice, yeah. Yeah, she was, mm. she was nice to us. Did, yeah. you, do you, did you feel like she warmed the crowd up appropriately for your performance? Just enough. Mm. Just enough for us. She drank all that rider, though. Did she? Yeah. yeah. Well, she had all those backup dancers. <clears throat> oh, God. So they, they just rider spiders, we call them. People who mow through your rider. Yeah. They hang out backstage, hang out backstage, yeah. mill about, yeah, yeah. yeah. all the beers mysteriously disappear. How would you deal with that sort of that, that presence? Oh. That's very. 
Just take the high. Had a word to Jay Z, like a pretty (laughs) tough word. (laughs) Stern word to Jay Z. And that settled it? Yeah. What was it like to fly into this gigantic festival in the middle of essentially what is like resort country and then be there? Did you have time for downtime? Did you have time to see other bands to potentially recruit their backup dancers? (laughs) (laughs) We did. We we got there on the Friday. And so we got to see, we saw Jamiroquai on the Friday night, which was really good. Really fun. Feet Snoop Dogg. Feet Snoop Dogg, yeah. He was there too. He came out with Jamiroquai. Did he know he was performing with Jamiroquai, or did they just slowly? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> did Jamiroquai? Did he do the? Did he do the movements? Did he do the? He uh, he was dancing around a lot. He was, dancing, he was moving around a lot. He was he was wearing this really long, um, what do you call it? One of those? Jacket. Mumu. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's embarrassing. That's what I'm looking. What was the jacket? Which way were you facing? Wow. It wasn't a jacket. It was like a big. Um, what do you call them? Those? Mumu. Mumu. Yeah, it was a Mumu. I see. Oh, really? And a big light up headpiece. <laughs> Great. Yeah, yeah, so good. So yeah. did, that, did that intimidate you guys? Uh, no, yeah. no. Yeah, we don't have any light-up headpieces or any props, really. We yes. need to invest. Um, so I, I think I, maybe I didn't even say at the beginning, Hope Downs is your first album. I'm already in love with it. It's out June 15th on Sub Pop. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about that album, but first I want to commend you guys for the way that you've put out music thus far, which is through two mini LPs. I don't know if you call them EPs or mini LPs. But um, uh, one in 2016 and then um, French Press last year. I love the way that you were able to introduce yourself with these more digestible bites and, and deliver year in three years in a row, have these great collection of new songs. This looks like brilliant marketing from my perspective. <laughs> Was there that much thought uh, on your end or is it just the way it worked out? Um, not for the first one. The first one was just like a collection of songs, like sort of like a demo. But, right. Um, so yeah, we just put that out and then after we'd put it out ourselves, then we got a, a record deal to put that out. And then it just seemed like the, ne- the right thing to do next time is to put an EP out after that. We didn't have an old, whole album together, but we had a bunch of songs, so we put out French Press EP. Um, it just seemed like the right thing to do. And then, yeah, now. Yeah, the I think with streaming and all of that now, it's like the idea of, we, we love the idea of like the album, the LP. And yeah. So we're really excited to do that, but it's like you can kind of put out music and whatever. What do you want now? Yes, so I mean, we talk about this a lot when we talk about uh, on this podcast. When we talk about TV that sometimes you see a whole season and it's a little daunting. Mm. But if it's just a half hour show or if it's just an episode or something, mm. it's more digestible. Mm. Yeah, and it's a great mm. way to sort of wet the palate for the larger commitment because you you already have people on board. Um, that said, French Press was incredible, and I think I said I've said before it was probably my favorite album, even though it wasn't a full album of last year. Ten, 10 songs already a year later, how, did you feel pressure to do that or were the songs just flowing? Uh, flowing pretty, pretty freely, I guess. There's a, f- a few of them are old songs from even before um, French Press. So there's, yeah, we sort of reworked a few of those. But then, yeah, we just wrote a bunch of songs, I guess. It was, um, they all just fell out. <laughs> Makes it sound easy. <laughs> well, yeah, we just put a lot of work into it. it was, you know, we spent a lot of time. Yeah, we basically, after we finished recording French Press, we went straight into writing for the album. We didn't stop writing. Um, and yeah, so we, it, we probably wrote them over the course, most of the songs over the course of about a year and then went in to record them. And... Well, let's talk a little bit more about that because obviously there are three of you, three songwriters, three guitarists. I imagine it, the politics of that could get messy or complicated. How does this actually work? Because on stage and certainly on record, it, it sounds like you are a very cohesive band. Mm. 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 It's sort of like a, I guess you, a, a, a rule that we kind of em, like employ as a just for the good of the song. So there's no, mm. there's no ego 
about what's, uh, you know, this bit's the best, you know. You do, and it's because it's a kind of pop music, I guess. You just sort of, you can recognise the best hook mm. or the best uh, the best melody or something. Mm. And we can do, we're like, yep, that's, let's go with that. So, yeah, anyone can come in with ideas. We just basically, generally one of us will have a skeleton or something and we'll just bring it in and then just go like, you know, do what you want with it. But speaking of the sort of collaborative process, um, you guys uh, performed a moment ago and you performed my favorite song of last year, The French Press. Um, that song is so, it's both an incredible song and kind of thrilling because it's a dialogue, it's a story song. Um, did that begin, uh, uh, Tom, as a, a, that was the intention or did, or did Fran just start singing and you just couldn't turn his mic off? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it did, yeah, I guess. It just started as a yeah as a kind of loop, a jam, the, the kind of riff and um and a drum machine and uh, and then I'm just trying to remember how the actual lyrics came about. Um, yeah, I think we did come up with the concept like straight up. We were sort of Fran and I were like sitting in the bedroom, like throwing ideas back and forth, and then I think the concept um, came about pretty much straight away. It's like a story of you know two brothers. Um, you know, one sitting at home, like uh, in in his like safe desk job, and uh, you know, like having a, a pretty boring time, and and like um, the other one off overseas having adventure, kind of down and out, like struggling, and both like really uh, you know disconnected, trying to trying to uh, breach each other, and then yeah, I think naturally it just took on the. We both took on the ideas of these two characters and and made it a little a little back and forth. Well, I love the idea because pop songs are generally couples. There are a lot of couple songs in the in the mm -hmm. world of pop music, but usually romantic couples. The idea of a familial connection and then literally the mm -hmm. connection breaking with the cell phone was such a great addition to the song, and it makes mm -hmm. it it's just incredibly evocative. Mm -hmm. The actual original idea as well was that it was a Skype call. So we're not <laughs> sure if it's the only rock song about Skype. But, um, I mean, what could be more rock and roll than Skype? I mean, you guys are, you guys are killing it on yeah. that front. Well, maybe uh, anti-coal throat lozenges. There it is. <laughs> it would help it if, if you were trying to call someone and you couldn't. Um, uh, the, well, I guess I realized this is a song about brothers and your brother is in the band. So did he take he offense is. to that? Is He's in the room. I mean. Yeah. No. Um, he's, well, we've got another brother as well. And yeah, he's living in Spain. So it could be. Oh, there's a little. Scuffed him before. Yeah, there's a little one. Pulled from, <laughs> ripped from the headlines. Yeah, totally. But <laughs> kind no, of thing here. Yeah, this wasn't a yeah, wasn't an actual uh, actual Skype call, but but it could have been. I think that's by, where we're headed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Inspired by true events. Um, what, one other thing that I, I was picking up on in the new album is that um, there are particularly you played "Talking Straight," which is the new single and uh, one of my favorite songs on the record. Um, there's also "Time in Common." There are a couple songs that deal lyrically with this idea of time and space and distance. Um, I was curious if these topics came from a place of uh, deep Stephen Hawking-esque musing about the universe, or they're just a byproduct of a band that is constantly crossing the international dateline. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, the talking straight was actually about the deep musings of the uh, of the universe. Just all that the concept that you could that we might be entirely alone and like uh, we're the only intelligent life form on in the whole universe. It's yeah. kind of a terrifying thought. But then, kind of bringing that back to just you know someone sitting next to you, and maybe you know you're there, we're alone as well, or something. You guys aren't even alone as Rolling Blackouts. There's another <laughs> band. I mean, I feel like yeah, yeah. <laughs> true. Yeah, 
But I, no, but I love mm. the idea that you could take these deeper, larger musings and you still pull it off in like two minutes, 50 seconds, and then it kind of rips. That's a really good use of a pop band, I think. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so I, I imagine that the record is coming out this summer. Um, that kind of means signing up for a lot of travel. You're going to be spending a lot of time in America. Yeah. Have you been given any advice for how to approach this gigantic country and continent? Are there things you're particularly looking forward to? Um, I think trying to eat as much salad as possible when you can. Because we're famous for our salads or yeah, because no, it's because, otherwise unhealthy? Well, it's famous for unhealthy food. Yes. So you just got to try and get it when you can. Yeah, you're welcome. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whole Foods is taking off though, isn't it? Apparently Whole Foods is... You mean you can find... Yeah, you can find a Whole Foods uh, in many, some, many places yeah. that will have indie rock concerts. Yeah, those, yeah. those two things yeah. go together. Perfect. Yeah. So saved you, us in a few situations. Fun. Just so go to the salad bar at Whole Foods. Five... Yeah. Austral dapper Australian gentleman at the hot bar in Whole Foods. <laughs> Chances are it's you guys. Yeah, yeah. that'll be us. So yeah, I think this is, this is good. We're talking about bridges. We're talking about <laughs> throat lozenges. And you're looking forward to salads. Yeah, love a good yeah. salad. <laughs> this is going to be a wild time for you guys. Uh, any salads at Coachella? Uh, no, no. They had pretty good catering. So you, could, good, yeah. you see the way I good. slipped that in? I brought it back. You thought you were yeah. done with the yeah. Coachella grilling? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I didn't eat a salad. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I stuck with the fish rather than the fried chicken, which was a good move. In you retrospect. ate fish in the desert? Yeah. The 105 degree desert? You ate some tilapia? Yeah, I mean, wow. yeah. It's no I mean, desert. That's there's, rock and roll. There's cured, um, curated lawns. Yeah, that's your bit of Yeah, it's very lush for a, for a desert. Yeah, that's one thing that was really freaking us out. That's why we are going to be alone in the universe sooner than we <laughs> yeah. think. Because we're doing that to the it desert. It did feel like it was the end of the world. There it is. Yeah. I, think we, I think that's a perfect place to end it. <laughs> Thank you for being on The Ringer's number one climate change podcast. <laughs> Seriously, though, guys, I'm so excited to have you here. Um, Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever on tour. The album is out June 15th. Uh, Hope Downs, it's on Sub Pop. This is, you guys are my favorite band at the moment. I'm so happy I could talk to you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having Thank you. Me. Thank you.